Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they lived in another city around the world. And this show is brought to you by Anytime Soccer Training. Anytime Soccer Training is the only training application with well over 5,000 training videos to cover all the major skill areas. Kids love it because the average video is five minutes, plenty of ref break, rest breaks, and it's 100% follow along. Parents love the fact that they can just hit play, and coaches love that they can create teams and see that the players are doing it. Check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more about what we do. And now let's get on to the show. This is going to be a quick show where I speak directly to um, parents and referees and coaches on a specific Facebook post. It's also a follow-up to a show I did a few months ago on um, delving into the role that I believe a coach should or should not have as it relates to controlling parent and other spectator behavior on the sidelines. And if you have not listened to that podcast, I encourage you to do so. I will put it in the show notes. But I effectively argue that it should not be the coach's role or really the referee's role to deal with spectators. And today, uh, I want to follow up on that podcast because it was prompted by uh, a, a Facebook post. But before I do that, let me just say that I kind of, the, the general responses that I see on this issue fall into a few camps. The first camp, which is a smaller group of people, effectively say, hey, it's not really a, a major problem. The sidelines are pretty tame in my area and from my experiences. It's just that now that we have iPhones and social media, the few issues or the minority issues are made more public and sensationalized. There's another group that's a smaller group of people that, I mean, a larger group that says it's a real problem. The trend is growing. We see it all the time. But I, or the coach that I uh, of my child's team, or I as a referee, or the referees of my children's games, they solve this problem. And if more people did what they did, this problem would be solved. Our club has solved this problem. Our club is clear. Our club does this. And if more clubs did what we did, this problem would be solved. I call this the strongman perspective. If people had the moral conviction and execution of us, they did what I did, this would not be a big problem. And finally, there's another large group of people saying, hey, this is, this is a problem and, and it's really an ethical issue. In other words, parents should know to do better. Parents are crazy. They need to get their act together. And where I try to add some nuance in this whole area is saying, when you, number one, in terms of the ethical moral framework, when you see groups of people across uh, spectrum, a spectrum of ages, spectrum of cultures, spectrum of regions, when you see them behaving in a certain way, even if it's completely wrong and immoral, if they're behaving in a certain way consistently, 
So you have 100 people and consistently one person does X, Y, and Z. This is enough information for me to say that what they're doing is expected. Not right, but it's predictable. And we can do, now that we know this behavior is predictable, we probably can do some things to reduce this predictable behavior. I don't want to place a moral framework trying to get that one or two people to change how they think. I think that's a fool's error. I try to get, I try to come up with systems or policies or actions to make sure those one or two people, uh, we form some intervention so that they don't behave in this way, at least in the short term, regardless of how they feel about it. And that was the that was pretty much the subject or part of the subject around um, the last podcast was saying, hey, this is a problem, but I don't think the coach is in the best position to solve this problem. So now what I'm going to do is pivot really quickly. I want to keep this podcast short, pivot to a post that was um, posted in one of the groups. I'm going to talk about one of the answers because I was having a dialogue with a ref slash coach, and then I'm going to sum it up with sort of an overarching way I would probably recommend folks think about it, or at least the way I try to think about it. So here's the post. Saw a parent get sent off today. That's nothing new. Parents get sent off all the time. What I thought was cool slash different was the ref made the team's coach send the parent off. I feel like that adds a layer of responsibility for the club. I think it's good to remember that regardless of which league slash level your kid is playing in, uh, slash at we are all responsible uh, for representing our kid their team and their club so what i want to do really quickly is decompose this um just offer some insight on this post because i do think this post is a ref is reflective of what of the attitudes that a lot of people in youth soccer have so the first thing is they're saying that the parent being sent off is nothing new now I can't argue with that. This is their personal experience. They may see this all the time. I can say in my decade of, of being around youth soccer, I think maybe three times uh, I've seen a parent. I've actually only seen a parent maybe once or twice be sent off. So be sent off at a game that I was a part of, my kids were a part of. And that's pushing it. I actually don't even remember a specific case, but I can imagine I think so. And I've only heard about it twice, once at Jefferson Cup, and there are hundreds of teams. I was walking by and a parent, they said a parent got sent off at our game earlier, which was depressing because the kids were like, nah. And I remember in a tournament in New Jersey, parent being sent off. And that was because they were behaving badly the most of the game. And then they ran over the pitch when the team scored the winning goal and they were sent off. So I'm saying this, I'm saying that to say. Uh, I found that a bit odd and I would love to get people's feedback if parents are being sent off. It might be because of my sons don't, my younger son is pretty young and my older son doesn't play in the mainstream soccer events. So it could be a little bit of that. The next thing is they're saying, hey, this is, they noticed something that was different, right? And that, that word is also very important because when you're trying to change policies, not change policies, sorry, change behaviors, and offer a consistent solution across the board, you actually don't want different things happening. You really want something to be very consistent and very, very, um, very predictable. So for example, you don't want a situation where someone is going 95 in a 45 mile an hour speed, uh, speed zone 
and they get a ticket and someone responds, man, that's different. They never give tickets. You know, you want it to be, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. If you go on 95 and 45, you're going to jail, right? You want it to be very predictable. You want it to be very transparent and you want it to be very clear. And then the next thing is, and I think this is where we really as parents have to think parents and then as uh, clubs who are trying to curb this problem is we really, really got to empathize with the coach and the referee. And I'm going to breeze through this really quickly. It sounds like um, if I had to visualize what's happening, this is what it sounds like is happening in more detail. Parent is misbehaving. Constantly misbehaving, constantly misbehaving. Finally, the ref has had enough. They go over to the parent and say, cut it out, stop. Parent does it again. At a minimum, the ref then says, okay, now it's bad enough. I've given them at least one warning. More than likely, they would give them two. Now I got to go over to the coach and tell the coach to tell the ref, uh, tell the parents to calm down. Uh, parent does it again. Sounds like the ref now has to go back over there to the coach and say, now you need to go and send this person off on my behalf. Coach then has to go take the walk of shame across the field to tell that particular parent hey, you need to leave in order for us to um, start this game again. Sounds like that's what's happening. And it sounds like hopefully that only happens with one parent, right? And I have been arguing that that should not be the responsibility of the ref and that should not be the responsibility of the coach. As a matter of fact, I want the ref uh, uh, spending 99.999% of their time focused on player safety and refing a decent game for the kids. And I want the coach to spend 99.999% of their time focused on the kids, right? I don't want them spending, I feel sound like Herman, Herman Cain when I say 999, he was a Morehouse grad by, by, by um, um, for the record, just a shout out to the late Herman Cain. But I feel like I'm, I want to say 100%, but I guess there's a few things the coach needs to needs to look at but i want them spending 99.99 percent of the time on on my kid i don't want that coach to spend any time focused on the 45 year old a, a parent or spectator who doesn't know how to act because that's free rent the coach now has to get put in their head and then the next thing is let's assume that that does happen properly again if we put ourselves in the perspective of the ref many of these refs are going to be younger than the parents, right? There will be some that's older or all the same age, but oftentimes they're young people earning extra money. People don't like conflict, period. People, it's not in our human nature to want to engage in conflict against groups, right? So there's a lot of spectators. It's not in our human nature to engage in conflict against people who are older than us. It's not in our nature to engage in conflict when the person we have a conflict with has a family member involved. We don't wanna go there, right? As normal, rational, loving human beings. So now you're asking this young ref to go over there and fight with this middle-aged person um, about at a soccer game. And I don't see that being executed uh, effectively, uh, consistently. Now you, now you asking the coach, people don't like having conflict with people that they need to have some kind of relationship with. They don't like having conflict with people in the workplace. And again, they don't like having public conflict. That's why you'll often hear people say, hey, can we, can we talk about this later? Or can we talk about this in private? Now you're asking the coach who also could be a young professional just getting started out, 
to stop what they're doing and go over there and deal with one of their players, embarrass their player and deal with one of their player's parents. Our disposition as humans is to try to get through things with as little as little conflict as possible. And now you're asking this coach to do it. And I call this the strong man argument. And this is what I talked about in the previous podcast. Okay, so now what I'm gonna do is quickly read one of the responses. This is a pretty long response, but I think it's worth reading. Reading one of the responses to my comment, I, I effectively said, hey, I don't, I don't think this is the ref's role or really the coach's role to be to get involved with this. And I want to read one of these responses. So the the um, person who it looks like he's a ref as well as a parent and a coach. So first of all, thank you for your service and your commitment. The person says, yes, that's exactly what the coach is expected to do. And I mentioned the coach has full control and responsibility. As in, if a coach determines a parent is getting out of line before a referee determines it, they have full authority to control their own spectators. If control can't be be established, responsibility is. So I'm going to stop there and give some say. So now not only do they expect the coach to address the issue if the ref calls them over to address the issue, they appear to be expecting the coach to keep tabs on the parents so uh, across the field, right? So that if our spectators, and it's important to remember that not every person on the sideline is a parent, so that if something happens um, at a level that rewards a warning or to be sent off, even if the referee doesn't notice it, the coach should. And not only um, should they do this, this is not a like to have, this is their responsibility. So in other words, if I were to fire a coach, According to them, I have cause for doing so if they don't do this thing. And I find this to be a tall ask. So then keep going. This is what we teach new referees. If there is a problem spectator, the referee is to ask the coach to walk over to the sidelines and remove the problem spectator. If neither coach can determine who the spectator is, they are instructed to tell the sideline that the game will not restart until the person is removed. So let's think about that again. So what one of the things with the strong man argument, strong man argument, which is, hey, if everybody did it like us, it would work is one of the big disconnects is they lay out a policy. And yes, if that policy is executed as they lay it out, the problem would be solved. But what I try to explain a lot in um, when I'm speaking to people in the social media, having conversations with people, is what is said oftentimes can be far a far cry from what is happening in reality another thing with the, the strong man argument is they tend to say well i understand that this is an issue with new coaches or new referees if they had all the experience that i had this would not be a problem well when you create policies when you create procedures you pretty much need to create i think something where um, it can be executed. If you're going to put the person in the role, then they need to be able to execute. Now, we know there's going to be a little gray area there, but you know, I'm not going to put you in a role and then say, well, if you had this experience, you'd be able to execute the job duties. No, no, the role needs to be, or the training or the expectations need to fit day one versus day 20, right? That's kind of how it works. And if I, if I require you to have this amount of experience, I can't put you in that position. And 
Um, and then the final thing about this particular case is if we play this out, now the coach goes over. They can't determine who said it. So now they got to do, <laughs> they got to have a quick um, jury trial to try to see an, an investigation to try to figure out who did, did this thing, right? And now I guess the other parents have to snitch on that parent or the parent who you have admitted is crazy has to um, self-identify and then decide to leave. This is what you're asking to happen. All of this is taken away from um, from the kids and is creating a stressful situation for our refs and our coaches who are there to do a, who should be there to focus, do a specific job, which is focus on, uh, focus on the kids. So let's keep going. I had this literal scenario happen a month ago. Somebody yelled out a slur and I stopped the game. Game didn't restart for seven minutes because the coach couldn't get the mystery spectator to own up until he told them the game wouldn't restart until they left. Magically, they identified themselves and left. Not a single problem the rest of the game. All right, so again, try to visualize this. The game is seven minutes. The kids are there because everybody's stressed. None of the parents are going to put, because people don't want conflict, you know, stitches get snitches, I guess. Snitches get stitches. So the parents don't want to identify and call out their friends saying, hey, you said this. So now the game is waited. Um, there's a seven minute delay. Right. And then it goes back to my other podcast in terms of policies and procedures. How long is too long to wait? Because remember, they normally have other games um, lined up after these games a lot of times. So how long is it? Ten minutes and then you call the game. Is it five minutes you call the game? So if I'm the director of coaching or I am the enforcement person and you waited seven minutes, is that too long? Like what is the rule there? I don't think there's a uniform. There could be. That's why I'm calling out there. Maybe there is a uniform policy on how long you should hold the game before you uh, before you call it. All right. So keep going. And it's certainly logical. And if and it's even less fair to expect referees to have to put up with this abuse. Referees don't abuse spectators. The spectators are 100% the problem. So then this is, this is absolutely right. But then it starts, link, it starts getting into that sort of ethical thing that, hey, the spectators are the problem and blah, blah, blah. Yes, the spectators are 100% the problem. And refs, don't abuse spectators. But the reason refs don't abuse spectators is not because they're some ethically better. I argue they're just in a different position. What I mean by that? I got friends who are refs, and when they are spectators, they behave badly. And I got friends who are coaches who, when they are spectators, they behave badly. When they are coaches, they behave badly. I think So I think a lot of it is just the role that you're in, right? All right, keep moving. And if a coach can't get the spectators under control, the game is to be abandoned, plain and simple. Doesn't matter how good a coach is against spectators. Um, if spectators are drawing the coach's attention away from the game, that's nobody's fault but the spectators. So again, and I'll keep going back to this, my number one priority is the kids. And I really want the ref and the uh, coach to have the to be liberated i guess you'd say so that their their focus is on the children and i want to remove any barriers that takes or any distractions that take uh, their attention even for one minute that little bit of time they have with the children i want to i want to avoid 
any distractions from them. I want to remove any distractions from their plate that prevents them from focusing on the kids. And I don't care if it's a U7 game. I don't care if it's the Premier League. I don't want, you know, um, Pep Guardiola turning over to the, turning to the Man City fans, trying to tell them to be called. I want stewards there. I want someone, it's someone else's job. I want them focused on the pitch. All right. So now that I said all that, let's let's talk about how I would think about this thing if I were the uh, if I were a club director, which I'm not, or if I were a league official, which I'm not, or if I were in U.S. soccer, which I am not. So take all of this as a grain of salt. The first thing is we have to think about organizations, excuse me, and nonprofits, and where I see a lot of nonprofits have some issues. And one issue that nonprofits have, because that's what youth soccer clubs are for the most part, even though I know people are laughing out of the room, but for the most part, they're nonprofits. One of the issues they have is they um, they they give too broad of responsibilities to their volunteers and employees who are mainly in this thing because they're mission-driven. So I had to think about that and how I would phrase it. But so let me repeat that. So you have a person who loves the game, loves working with children, wants to be involved in the game, um, not going to make a lot of money doing it. And one of the issues with nonprofits is they end up overworking these people. And one of the ways they overwork them is they give them too many responsibilities that are just difficult to manage. And then they end up, quote unquote, burning these people out. So this is a general issue you'll hear a lot of times with nonprofits. So another issue within youth soccer specifically, but it happens in a lot of industries, but definitely youth soccer is, we don't do a great job of managing um, conflicts of interest. So the coach, the coach's job, primary job is develop players, build a relationship with players, build a relationship with families, um, be a positive voice in the community, lead by example, all that stuff. And there are many conflicts of interest, interest to doing that. And one of them is dealing with spectators who are there mainly to enjoy the game and then having to step in as a role of punisher and executioner. And this is a conflict because all week, all month and all year, you're building relationships with these people and that you, you even may have even recruited them. So part of a coach's job is to be a recruiter, right? You come and, hey, you should come to this club. This is what we're trying to do. And now you're asking them, oh, by the way, though, I got to punish you this game. I got to push you out of this game. I got to do this. This is a conflict of interest. And this is a problem that many industries struggle with. And, and what is best done and the best solution I've found is to try your best to remove these conflicts of interest when practical. And then another issue is they tend to frame these things as moral or ethical choices. Oh, the teacher doesn't care about the kids. Oh, the coach doesn't care about the kids. Oh, the coach can't control the spectators. Or, oh, the parents are crazy. These are, these are ethical uh, statements that I don't know if necessarily apply completely. Yes, there's an e ethical element, but in, er in order to change it from an operational perspective, organizational perspective, national perspective, um, um, scalable, make it scalable, ethical frameworks don't typically work because you, it's very difficult to change culture, change the way people are in by appealing to their sense of right and wrong. I found this to be very, very, very difficult. And there's a lot of gray area as well. Okay, I've come up with a simple um, 
acronym that I would use that, that sort of reflects a comprehensive approach that I think clubs should take, or at least I would take, if they were uh, really trying to change the behavior that we see on the sidelines. An acronym is PEED. So I'm effectively saying you need to pee on the problem. P-P-P-E-E-D. It's really more of a mnemonic just to remember uh, just to remember the key, the key points. So let's talk about this. P-P-P-E-E-D. And what is it? Now, it's not in any specific order. I just use it as a mnemonic to help me remember. But the first thing is prevention. Right. So I do think this is an area that the clubs do a decent job on, which is preventing this stuff from happening. And what are some of the ways you can prevent? You know, you you have a code of conduct, you maybe have PSAs, you have stuff like that. It just helps people um, remember that take a chill pill. This is a game and it has a negative and your behavior can have a positive or negative uh, impact on on uh, on your child, especially your behavior during the game. The next one is education, right? And so again, the mnemonic is not in specific order. The next one is education. And what that looks like is not only are you doing prevention, like you're explaining it to people, but you're de digging deeper on what are the ways you can behave? Po what does positive behavior look like? What does negative behavior look like? And you're trying to elevate the, the conversation so that parents really truly begin to internalize this stuff. But education, especially when it comes to changing behavior, needs to be part of a comprehensive plan. And it's a very slow process, right? It's just constantly reminding people what's going on, right? And I'm not going to go into a lot of details on these because I think the details of what a club would do the details of what an organization would do are going to vary uh, based on what their particular situation and based on how they perceive the problem. But this is just a general overview of how I would think about it. Then you have um, a deterrent, right? So, so if you really want to change this, this uh, behavior, you have to, you really need to have a bunch of deterrent mechanisms in place. Some can, some, some deterrents can, can be used before uh, the game even starts, and some of them can be used during the game. The turns can be visual, it can be audible, it can be uh, a lot of different ways. That it. it could be barriers, like where you set things up. All these things can be done to deter specific behavior. So, for example, um, you know, just thinking about something off the fly that doesn't cost any money and it could be a deterrent is if you want the referee be able to be involved, maybe you make it mandatory. It's a mandatory policy that they have to read a short script to the sidelines before each game. So just like they have to check the player cards and check that the players are wearing shin guards, maybe they have to read this five or six sentence clip. Hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm going to be the ref today. This is um, uh, a warning or admonishment or an announcement from the league, from the clubs and, coach, and the coaches that parents are not allowed to coach from the sidelines. Uh, no criticism to the ref will be tolerated. No abusive language will be tolerated. Just sit back and enjoy the game. But make it very standard so that every time you hear a youth, you attend, you attend a youth soccer game, um, that same pledge is read, right? That same PSA is read. And, and again, I'm just free thinking. You may even get a parent's opportunity to ask questions. So does anyone have any questions about what was just said? Yes or no? 
All right. Does anyone have any questions about the consequences? Yes or no? But you have to make it statutory. You can't rely on the strongman experienced referee to do that. I've actually seen referees address the crowd or the parents before a game. And I think that does have some um, positive impact. But this is a referee taking it upon himself to do that. It needs to be standardized. And this is just one random example. But that's part of the deterrent. You can have signs as a deterrent. And you can have people as a deterrent as well. All right. So we talked about prevention. We talked about um, education. And we talked about uh, deterrent. Well, the next areas are areas um, that I don't think... Uh, the clubs do a great job with. And one of them is you have to have some degree of enforcement. You have to have enforcement of the rules, right? And where there's a big divide in all these podcasts that I've been doing on this subject sort of point out is a couple of things. Number one, it's very rare that industry participants will voluntarily punish their own customers unless the situation is ridiculously egregious right so it's so that's a fancy way of saying it. it's very rare that the race the the ferrari company will also enforce speeding of their cars just not how it works because they don't want to be the ones punishing their own customers there's a conflict of interest there that we talked about and that requires an investment which we're going to get to to actually be able to enforce that they have some self-policing mechanisms in place, but when it comes to their customers, it will have to be pretty egregious before they, before the industry participants actually took uh, action against their own customers. And that's why I don't think it's really an, an effective strategy to ask the coach, or in many cases, the coach could be the club owner to play this dual role of enforcer as well as a partner as well as customer, right? You, the coach in many cases can be the one that actually recruits the kids to the team. The coach can be the one that's trying to build a relationship with the family. Coach could have been having um, dinner with the team and family two days ago, and now you're asking them to kick a parent off the team out of the pitch. Even though they're well, they would be well within their rights, this then causes, uh, this is a conflict of interest that normally organizations are not very good at executing against their own customers. So the enforcement piece, in my opinion, is best done by a third party. Every industry has figured this out. If I have a concert, I have people there, I'm not going to ask the band, I'm not going to ask the host to step in and try to deal with the crowd. I have to bring in security. I have to bring in a, a third party to, to do it. And what that could look like in youth soccer is if you if you believe it's that kind of problem. See, that here's the thing. If you don't think it's a problem, you don't need to do this. At all, And this is not the only way you can do enforcement, but I think it's a better way of doing enforcement than trying to get the coach involved. But what that could look like in youth soccer is um, there be field marshals that patrol the uh, stands, so uh, fields. they just walk around the various fields at different games. You have these field marshals, they're in a different color uniform, everyone knows uh, who they are. The field marshal could be the person that addresses the crowd before the game. But the field marshal's job is solely there to enforce the code of conduct on the sidelines. And you want to remove um, that burden from the coach. So when the time comes that someone has to be removed, the coach can look at the parents and say, hey, this is out of my hands. It's the it's the league rules. You, you, you broke the rules. Let's go ahead and get it done. But the coach really is not going to be involved in it. If the referee sees a problem, 
they just call for the field marshal. The field marshal comes over there and deal with it. You don't deal with it, okay? So then that brings me to the next part of it. We have, we said prevention, pun uh, oh, oh, and then punishment. And punishment is what is exacted during the actual game. And then punishment will be whatever happens afterwards. And I'm saying even that punishment, if it happens during that league game, should be uh, administered by the league, not necessarily the club. The club can um, impose their own punishment on top of what the league and organization or governing body imposes. But again, we don't want that burden of the club trying to punish their own parents and their own clients. Because again, in theory, even though I'm reading how strong clubs should be able to do this and set the expectations, it doesn't happen consistently, period. And then the only people who, in the clubs who are doing it right, so to speak, are the ones who um, suffer a disproportionate amount of consequences and the clubs who are not or don't, or don't suffer these consequences. Okay, then we go on to, so we talked about prevention, we talked about education, enforcement, deterrence, and the final thing is payment. And I just try to keep a P, but in this case, payment is if you believe this is a problem and you think it's a recurring problem, as the person in the post originally said, this is parents getting kicked out. It's something that happens all the time. In order to really um, fix it, it needs to be a another P, a priority. And that priority will require investment, which I'm calling payments. You have got to invest in this. But you're not going to be able to talk people into changing behaviors. You're going to have to say, normally we have three referees. Now we're going to have three referees. Plus we hire one referee as the, and their duty is the field marshal, to be a field marshal. So we're having a hiring a fourth referee. Or if it's a younger game, we're hiring, we're hiring two referees to be linemen, linesmen and one of them to do the field marshal uh, responsibility. Or we have three referees per game, but we're hiring this other fourth referee to monitor more than one game as a field marshal and a reserve referee, period. And the $16 an hour, $17 an hour, $20 an hour, whatever they get paid needs to be distributed across all the spectators you know, in the fees. And it is what it is. And if you don't want to invest, I, I have not, I don't recall organizational change happening at scale without serious financial and time investment into making a change. Pledges don't appear to be to work in isolation. Changing the hearts and minds of folks doesn't appear to work in isolation. Railing on how crazy people are doesn't appear to work in isolation. What appears to work are comprehensive plans that are easy to understand, transparent, have accountability, along with training, time, and money invested into, and resources invested into to get the change you want. Now, where I fall on this is most games I've attended, the, the parent behavior has um, gotten to, the worst parent behavior is really at the level of what I would call annoying, right? I'd rather people just be quiet and enjoy the game. I haven't um, experienced too many serious issues with parent behavior, but if I were a um, league official or a club director, 
if things were to get out of hand, I may actually tell the team one of your uh, punishments is if, if we have if a referee reports this last game got out of hand, you may have to um, do a field marshal fee before your parents can attend their next game or something like that. I don't know. And I know it's so easy to say this stuff in theory because the culture of youth soccer and, the, and what happens on the ground is uh, it's so different. I mean, this is not even something most people even would even think about. So it's, I think this will have to be something that comes from the league or even higher that says, listen, any game needs to have a field, has four referees, and this is the cost, and just book bacon in. And that fourth referee is there to deal with spectators, be a deterrent, um, answer any questions spectators have, and be responsible for enforcing the code of content, conduct that we expect. All right, guys, this is Neil Crawford, Anytime Soccer Training. Um, let's get better together.